Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Hi, 710 over there. Uh, like Jeremy said, my name is Corey Casperson, and uh, yeah, I'm the pastor of 710, the college and young adults ministry here. And uh, I just want to take a second and encourage you uh, that God is at work in this church community. And uh, the reason I say that is because I think so often it's easy to come to church, you get into your rhythm, and you almost forget the best part about coming, and that's that God is actively and personally encountering us as his community, but also us personally as individuals. And I also want to encourage you that God is at work in the young adults of Redemption Gilbert. I have a quick God story to share with you uh, from this summer. So um, probably, this was in May, we have a 7 named Nate, and he went to Discount Tire to fill up his tires to get them all right and good to go. Um, and the person who was filling his tires was named Tate. And Nate invited Tate to come to 710 for the first time. So uh, Tate came to 710. It was the last one we were having of the year, which meant free tacos uh, for all of us and for him, which worked great. Uh, Tate came up to me with kind of a smirk on his face. And uh, he goes, I just want to let you know I'm not a Christian. And then he said a couple other things with a smirk on his face. And I smiled back to him. I said, dude, I'm just so happy you're here. I hope this is a community that you feel safe with, a community where you can just come to encounter God and to learn more about him. Fast forward a few weeks. This is probably four weeks ago. Um, I saw Tate coming on Sunday. And uh, before the service, I felt like the Lord was just kind of cultivating a uniquely a, a prayerful kind of disposition in my heart for that service. And I was sitting right over there, and I look across the worship center to Tate sitting over here, and I felt like God was just saying, hey, just start praying for Tate's salvation and deliverance. And uh, I didn't think anything of it during the service, but after the service, I make my way over here. Uh, Tate meets me right here, misty-eyed, says I want to get baptized, and I love Jesus. And so I just share that because God is doing stuff like that all over the place, uh, and it should be really encouraging to us. Um, Anyway, so I've been coming to Redemption Gilbert for seven years now. I graduated from Valley Christian High School, and as soon as I graduated, before I started going to GCU, um, I wanted to pick a new church to go to. And my first Sunday at Redemption Gilbert, I was sitting right over here, and Paul Artino, who was the former 710 pastor, the lead pastor of this congregation now, was teaching, and I was just really connected with him. And God was doing a ton of incredible things in my life. Uh, I've been a Christian since I was a, a younger child, and my family raised me in the ways of Jesus. But it almost felt like a second conversion my freshman year of college, where things just came alive in a whole new way. And so I started going to 710, started going to GCU. Uh, I met Connor. Uh, move-in day, uh, Connor's our worship leader, our move-in day at GCU, uh, a week later we got lunch, uh, we shared our stories and realized God has been doing the exact same thing in our lives uh, separately and now we get to bring those together and then that year, fast forward, we're in 710, we're on fire for Jesus, um, I asked Paul after the end of a message if I could intern, uh, I think at the end of the year in May. And uh, so Connor and I started to intern that summer, which pretty much just consisted of me sitting in Paul's office on his couch, looking at the side of his face while he wrote messages. And uh, he gave us like a TV tray for our desk for about a year and a half. And he taught me that all of life is all for Jesus. So my internship consisted of taking his car to get oil changes 
uh, to pick it up when he was busy. Uh, Connor and I would unload the Suburban and reload it, and he just really had to instill that all of life was all for Jesus. So I got practical discipleship, theological discipleship. It was great. Fast forward two or three more years, and then I met the most important person in my life besides Jesus, my wife, Crystal. Uh, she's from Colorado. One of my best friends had an Old Testament class with her at GCU, and he was into her, and uh, I didn't know who she was at the time. It didn't work with him, so he was like, let's try Corey. And so he tried Corey, set us up on a hike together with some friends. Uh, we kicked it off a year and a half later, got married, and we've been married for three years now. Crystal is the most sweet, quirky, funny, loving, caring person you'll ever meet. And uh, she's a junior high science teacher, uh, so she's with junior hires all day, and then she, come homes to, and then she comes home to me, and so she's uh, worn out a lot. <laughs> so pray for her rest, and uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Uh, but you guys didn't come here for me, you came here for Jesus, and we're going to talk about Jesus through the book of Nehemiah. So um, before we get into the Word of God, let's uh, pray together. Jesus, we love you, and... Uh, Lord, we do not want to go through the motions this morning. God, some of us have come from very distracting weeks, uh, very distracting uh, times. Maybe even this morning, God, we're a little bit flustered, but we pray your peace over this time. God, we want to experience Holy Spirit gospel transformation in our lives this morning. God, we want to experience that as a church, and we want to experience that as individuals. Jesus, thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for the call that you've placed on our life, and I pray that we'd be nourished with the Word of God this morning. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 9 this morning, and I know everybody in here is not a follower of Jesus, and I just want to say welcome. I hope this is a safe place uh, for you to um, yeah, think about and encounter uh, the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. And uh, you came to hear about Jesus, but then you hear what's teaching through Nehemiah, and you're like, oh shoot, like this is going to get real confusing, and I've never even heard of the book. And I just want to assure you that uh, although Nehemiah might be foreign, I'll try to make it simple, and I'll, try to, and I'll do my best to reveal the beauty of Jesus and the call of the church through today's passage. So um, Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer uh, to the Persian king. The nation of Israel was in exile because of their disobedience to God. They were handed over in judgment first to Assyria, then to Babylon, and now the Persian Empire was the dominant empire at the time, and they were uh, enslaving the people of Israel. And Nehemiah, as the cupbearer of the king, he looked to the city of Jerusalem and realized that it was totally decimated, its walls were destroyed, and as a Jew, as an Israelite, this broke Nehemiah's heart. So Nehemiah goes to the king, and he asked for permission to go and to take some of the Israelites with him to go rebuild uh, the city walls. And so Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah prays this beautiful prayer. I would encourage you to go read it. And then chapters 2 through chapter 7 is uh, building the wall project, building the walls around Jerusalem. And there's so much opposition to that, yet God was faithful to what he called Nehemiah to do, um, <clears throat> which leads us to chapters 8 through 10. Um, in chapters 8 through 10, is the, the walls have been rebuilt, the people have been reconstituted, uh, and Israel is now in a covenant renewal ceremony. They were in a covenant with the creator God, Yahweh. Um, and in this particular section, chapter 8 last week, Israel reads the law read by Ezra, 
Um, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. Uh, you can listen to that online from Jeremy last week. And then in today's chapter, Israel is confessing their sin by narrating their failure to play their role and to take up their call as God's people in the redemptive story of God. And we already read these verses, but we'll reread them. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. So this is a, a physical expression of their spiritual condition as the people of God. Verse 2, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. This was to show their distinctiveness as the people of God, their purity and their integrity. They stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So if you think church is long, imagine being in this scene. And so here's what's happening. Israel, they're confessing their sin, but it says that they read from the book of the law. This isn't just Israel listening to, are listening to a list of laws and then confessing the ways that they've disobeyed those laws. It is partly that, but when it says the book of the law, that's actually talking about the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of your Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Genesis through Deuteronomy is a story. So Israel is listening to the story of God and what he's doing in the world through them as a people. And then when they hear that story read, they realized they have not been the people that God is calling them to be. And so they break out into fasting and confession and in worship because God was remaining faithful to them, even in their disobedience. But nevertheless, they were a sinful people, and it led them to confession. Now, we need to stop for a second, and we need to talk about what the call of Israel was. What was their vocation? What was their job? Because in order to understand our role in this story today, we need to talk about Israel first. So let's zoom out and talk about what the story of the Bible is. The story of the Bible is showing how God is on a rescue mission to restore all creation and all of human life under his rule and reign. So Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of your Bible, if you're new to faith, is a picture of God creating this world, establishing it as his kingdom where he is king. He creates humanity in his image, and he gives them a job to rule on his behalf using his wisdom and submitting to him as a king. That goes horribly wrong. Humanity rebels against God. They're deceived by the serpent. And then if you fast forward all the way to the very end of your Bible, you'll see that the last two pages of the Bible is God coming down out of heaven, establishing his kingdom on earth once and again, once and for all. And God is dwelling with humanity. The Garden of Eden is now a city where God is with his people in a renewed creation, in a new world, forever and ever. And at the very beginning, everything in between those, Genesis 1 and 2 and the last two chapters of the Bible, is showing how God is moving his redemptive story for the world to that goal. And so at the very beginning of this, God chose Israel out of the nations to be the people through whom he would display that wise rule and reign. This is how it was supposed to be. I'm taking Israel out of the nations, and they're supposed to show the world what God's rule and reign looks like, what a just society looks like when they follow the creator God. They were to attract the nations. They were supposed to look at the people of Israel and go, man, whoever their God is, we want to be a part of that 
Because look what we're seeing in the nation of Israel. And you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verses 5 through 8. Moses is talking to the people before they go into the land. He's old. He knows he's not going to go in. And he says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So God gave Israel the law, and if they obeyed it, they would represent God's character and God's wisdom to the nations and draw the nations in. Zoom back in, Nehemiah chapter 9. In, in, in verses 5 through 31, uh, the Levites lead the, the people of Israel in corporate prayer and confession by retracing this story, highlighting God's grace in light of their failure. So they retrace their story, and they're like, man, God has been gracious we have not done pretty much anything that God's asked us to do. And they do it, but they retrace the story, and the Levites lead this people, lead the people of Israel in prayer. And I wish I could go and actually read this all to you, but it, like five minutes later, we'd be done. I'd encourage you, if you want to read a uh, summary of the Old Testament story that's beautifully done, read Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 through 31 on your own. So I'll summarize it, though. <clears throat> The Levites lead the people in prayer, and they start by praying and praising God for being the creator of the whole world. Uh, this, this earth does not come from many gods, but there's one true creator God from whom uh, everything and everyone derives its meaning and its purpose. That was beautiful until humanity made it not that way. They rebelled against God, so God chooses Abraham out of the nations by his grace, not because of anything that he had done, and makes a covenant with him and says, through you and through your family and through the nation that's going to come from you, I'm going to fix the problem of sin in the world. A huge promise. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob, is, his name is changed by God to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, which becomes the nation of Israel. And because of a famine in Genesis, Israel has to go to Egypt. And in Egypt, there arose a pharaoh who did not know Joseph and enslaved the people of God. And they're in, and they're in Egypt for 400 years. Israel, in their destitute, in their slavery, in their oppression, they cry out to God. Because how are they supposed to fulfill their call if they're enslaved to a foreign people? God hears their cry, redeems Israel out of Egypt. He punks Pharaoh, punks Pharaoh's gods, delivers this people in miraculous ways. God gives them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them. And God leads Israel to Mount Sinai. God gives Israel a covenant. And he says, I will be, my God. I will be your God. I will be your king. And you will be my people. And he gives them a law, which the foundation of that law is the Ten Commandments. And this law is supposed to shape Israel and to display people. God guides and sustains Israel. And then all of a sudden, as soon as God, like this is this huge like, climax of the biblical story, 
and then Israel makes a golden calf for themselves. They get impatient with God. They fashion it, they worship it, and they say, Behold the Lord our God who brought us up out of Egypt. God brings judgment on the people, and yet he's still committed to them in his faithfulness and his promise. And so he guides Israel from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to the promised land. But in the wilderness, they grumble against God. They grumble against one another. They grumble against Moses, their leader. And they grumble, even though God provided food for them, God provided water for them, God provided shoes that didn't wear out. He was kind to them and gracious. And yet they grumbled. They even at one point appoint a leader to take them back to slavery. They're like, it'd be better in slavery than with God, which that's a lesson and a sermon on its own. <clears throat> that, is, that generation is unfaithful. So God says, you will not go into the promised land. God raises up another generation. Um, they are given the promised land, a new Eden, so to speak. Israel gets into the land, and rather than being distinct from the nations and in their obedience to God, they actually commit the idolatry of the nations. And the scriptures say that Israel actually became worse than the nations that they were actually supposed to attract and draw to God. They reject God's law completely. They worship other gods, get so bad that they're sacrificing their children to other gods, things that God never asked them to do. And then in God's mercy, God sends them prophets to speak on his behalf. And rather than listening to those prophets, they kill them. And they reject God's word. And so they're kicked out of the garden, so to speak. And they are taken into exile, first Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia. And then in verse 33, the people say this, And all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And then in verse 8, it says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement to put it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So essentially he's saying, hey, we're retelling our story. We've recognized that we've been unfaithful, but we also recognize how God's been faithful to us. And so we are recommitting ourselves to being the people of God once again in this covenant ceremony. Nehemiah chapter 9, this is what's happening. I was eating with my parents at Backyard Taco on Friday. My dad's like, oh, that's really cool. How the heck does that apply to us today? How are you going to make this relevant? So this is the part of the sermon uh, where it gets to shape us out of a people. Whenever you hear uh, a sermon, you should ask how uh, or read your Bible. What, is, what are we trying to learn or how is God trying to shape his people through this passage? Or what kind of people is this chapter trying to make us to be? And so I have three things that we'll talk through the rest of our time together that reveals to us what type of people we are to be. And the first thing that we see is that as New Testament followers of Jesus, we are to be people who take up our call to be the new humanity in all of our lives for the sake of the world. We are to be a people who take up our call, just as Israel was, was uh, put in binding agreement to take up their call to be the people of God for the sake of the world. See, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. When they failed, Israel's king came, Jesus of Nazareth, and he was the light of the world. And he was faithful, and he actually accomplished the salvation of the world that was promised to Abraham in the beginning. And then Jesus gathers a community, he renews the people of Israel, and then he sends them out on mission to be a display people. See, the story of Israel is not just a story, but the story of Israel is our story as the people of God. 
And their call is our call as New Testament Christians. See, God is creating a worldwide multi-ethnic family called the New Humanity that will inherit the new creation that Jesus brings, who has been, and we've been given a call to display God's rule and reign to a watching, broken, hopeless world. And the Apostle Paul knows this in Ephesians 2.15. He says God is taking Jew and Gentile, which is everybody, the Jews and all of us, except Neil right there. There's always a good joke for that when you're in the Old Testament. Um, But God has created a new humanity that is transformed by God's own life and love. And so Jesus is calling us today as his people to be a contrast community, to be a contrast society within our larger society at large, showing the world what it looks like when Jesus reigns over a people. So we're supposed to be a picture to the world of how things are supposed to be, how things were designed to be, created to be in the beginning. But at the same time, we're also called to be a people who give the world a preview of what things will be like when Jesus ushers in his kingdom once and for all. So we're a picture to the world and we're a preview to the world. And God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit, God power, within us as a community and individuals to accomplish this mission, to live it out. And so you may ask, okay, that's a great, that's a great picture. That's a huge call. What does that actually look like? And here it is. When we live out our call as the people of God, when we live out our new humanity that God has already made us, what you get is I have these seven things that should characterize and kind of define us as the people of God. And they're on the screen if you want to take notes. When Jesus uh, rules us and we submit to him in, in his justice and in his love and in his wisdom, what we get is we are a community of holiness and obedience to Jesus in a culture and a society of moral relativism. Our culture right now is, hey, do whatever you want. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, and as long as it aligns with our agenda. But Jesus, no, no, Jesus said, no, you are a contrast community that, is, that there is absolute truth, and Jesus actually is king, and he actually is Lord, and you're supposed to be holy and set apart and give your whole self to me. You're supposed to be obedient to me, not obedient to the culture around you. You're a contrast community, which everything else kind of unfolds from that. The second thing we see is that we're supposed to be a community, a society of unity, in a culture of division and polarization. What they're saying about our country right now is that it is the most divided and it's the most polarized that it's ever been since the Civil War. We divide over everything. But Jesus' last prayer is that his people would be unified, not just for the sake of unity, but unified around him as our king to show that people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of opinions can actually find unity around Jesus as our king. The third thing that we get is that we're called to be a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. Um, I don't know about you, but this last political season was crazy. And uh, there is a whole lot of outrage and fear. Just look at social media right now. Anger, outrage, fear. And God goes, no. We're a community of peace. We have God peace because our hope is in Jesus and in his name alone and nothing else. And we're not only a community of peace, but we're a community that seeks peace. We're a community of peacemakers. 
to bring peace to those who are outraged and those who are anxious and fearful. The fourth thing that we see is that we're a community of rest in a culture of burnout and exhaustion. Our world is burnt out, and our world is exhausted. Almost every single time I talk to people, it's like, I'm just tired, burnt out, worn out. And yet, we, it's because our world is living for things that are not God, and God does not, uh, God does not rule his people. God does not lead his people into burnout and exhaustion. Jesus says uh, in Matthew that, come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. He didn't say an, an easy life. He says, I'll give you even rest in the life that you have. And so the people of God should be a community of rest in a culture of burnout and exhaustion. But when we live out our call, we see we are a community of loving and committed relationships in a culture of individualism and tribalism. Um, Guys, the church should have the deepest, most loving, most committed relationships in this country and on this planet. We should. Because we we are bonded together by the Holy Spirit. We share the same past, we share the same present, and we share the same future together. And so when things get messy and things get hard and there's disagreement, we commit to each other. We double down even more in a culture that is so individualized, just private, and something that's so tribalized, like my tribe and your tribe, and we're all pissed at each other. We are called to be a community of committed and loving relationships Second to last thing is we're a community of justice and mercy in a culture of injustice and marginalization. The, the, the people of God recognize that God's future world will be a just world, a just society. So within our community, we seek out the marginalized. We seek out those who have experienced injustice and in love and in commitment to Jesus to love our neighbor as ourselves, we seek out those people And we fight for equality and equity for those people. That's what the world should see in the church. And lastly, we should see that we're a community of contentment and generosity and a culture of consumerism. We should see, guys, the church should be the most content and generous people on the planet. Because we recognize that everything that God has given us is not ours, but we're owners of nothing, stewards of everything, which means if God calls me to be generous, which he does, it shouldn't bother me because it's not my money and not my stuff in the first place. It's his. So in a culture that's just about taking and building my life, everything for myself, we are community, not with a scarcity mentality, but that God is an abundant, generous God, so we give abundantly and we're so content with what we have. Which leaves us a problem. Guilty. Bullseye. Nailed me. Nailed us. The church is not that in full. We're partly that. We can see hints of that. And then we look at other parts and we're like, ooh. I think the last couple years uh, have revealed that for the church here in America. Which leads us to our second point. We're to be a people who humbly confess the ways we have failed to be the people that God is calling us to be. See, the people in Nehemiah, they're able to retell their story, and they're able to humbly recognize the ways in which they have failed to be the people that God is calling them to be. 
And so instead of being from, distinct from the world, they blended with the world. So as New Testament Christians, followers of Jesus, we need to be able to humbly receive and recognize the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we have not always been that people. And we need to look at ourselves with sober judgment, individually, me and myself, and you and yourself, and us together. And we need to recognize the ways that God is showing us and convicting sin in us so that we can go and actually be the people that he's called us to be. Because what we see is God has called us to kingdom holiness and obedience to Jesus. But what I see in my life sometimes and what we see in the church sometimes is that we have half-hearted when it's convenient obedience to Jesus. Like, Jesus, I'll obey you if, if you give me that relationship, if you give me that job, if I get whatever. And by the way, whatever is on the other side of that if is your functional God, the thing that you're living for. Instead of unity, even when we disagree, what we see in the church is division over everything, division over politics. We see division over church practice and theology. And it comes way too easy in me and you and in us. Rather than peace and trust, God peace and God trust, what we see is anxiety and fear because the same idols that are running our world, we find ourselves running our lives after as well. We see uh, that we're called to wholeness and rest. And what we see is that overwork, burnout, and exhaustion lives within us. We're just as burnt out as our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers. And we don't experience the rest of Jesus because we don't know how to say no. I don't know how to say no. We see uh, that we're called to seek justice, and yet what we see in the church so often is indifference and numbness and a lack of compassion to people's pain and situations. Rather than starting with compassion, we start with a pointed finger. What we see is that we're called to contentment and generosity, and we see that we're pursuing wealth, stuff, and a comfortable life just as much as our culture. And not only that, it's crept into the church well, rather than uh, using my gift that God has given me to bless the church, we just look to the church to give us its gifts. And if it doesn't provide me what I want, I'm out. When, when Peter, in 1 Peter, says, hey, use your gift to bless your local church, to build up the body of Christ into maturity, which leads me to a couple lessons. One, if you want to minister uh, to the people of your city, if we want to minister to the people of Redemption Gilbert, excuse me, that too, but the people of Gilbert here, then we need to first loosen ourselves from the idols of our city. If you want to reach the people of your city, you first have to loosen yourselves from the idols of your city. And the second lesson we see is that repentance always precedes spiritual renewal and revival. We all want spiritual renewal and revival for this church and for your own lives. But so often, we won't submit to the means Jesus gives us to actually get that thing in the first place. Right? Jesus, I want renewal in my life, but I have this unconfessed sin. And I haven't confessed it to you, and I haven't confessed it to the body. So, but I'm really praying for this. That was three and a half years of my life. And God goes, confess to me, to the body of Christ, then experience renewal and revival. Repentance always precedes spiritual renewal and revival. If we want to see the outworkings of God in us, then we first have to acknowledge the ways that we've grieved the Holy Spirit in our communal lives and in our individual lives. Which leads me to my last point for us. 
Nehemiah shows us that we are to be a people that trust that God is moving his story forward in spite of our failure. Amen? We are to be a people who trust and worship God because he is moving his story forward in light of our failure. See, God will complete what he set out to do. Titus chapter 1 says God does not lie. God said he's going to make all things new. So even in our failure, God's still going to make all things new. We saw it from creation and the fall of the world to the time of Nehemiah. God was faithful to do what he promised to do. From Nehemiah to the time of Jesus, God moved his story forward even when Israel failed massively. We see it from Jesus to the time of today. Here at, in Gilbert in 2021, God has moved his, his, uh, his gospel forward. The gospel has gone out all over the world. And the Holy Spirit is changing lives. And God has moved his story forward. And here's the thing. From our time to the new heavens and the new earth, to the renewed world that God will bring in, we can trust that God will move his story forward. But in the meantime, as we wait, we take hold of the call that God has given us, the God-given call, the God-given privilege, the God-given responsibility to be the people he has called us to be in our personal lives and in our communal lives together as the new humanity that God is making. And we submit ourselves to the mission, mission of Jesus. We orient our whole lives to what Christ has called us to be and what Christ has called us to do. We have a general call as the people of God, but you have a very specific kingdom assignment where you live that out. And God is calling you to take up your call as we wait for him to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And so let me just end here with some self-examination and some evaluation with a picture. Some of you, when it comes to God's kingdom and God's kingdom mission, uh, you're like those outside of the stadium, if I'm using kind of a sports illustration. There are those outside the stadium, those, there are those in the crowd watching the game, and then there are those on the field. Some of you are, are outside of the stadium. This would be if you are not a follower of Jesus from your own confession, not what we say about you, but you confess, I am not a follower of Jesus. Uh, you are outside of what God is doing on the field. And my invitation to you and God's invitation to you is to come and see what Jesus is up to, what the Holy Spirit is up to in this place and come and taste and see the goodness of our Lord. Some of you are like those in the crowd watching the game on the field. And this is actually the most dangerous place to be um, because sometimes it's the most, you're the most self-deceived in this spot. Um, you're entertained maybe by what's going on in church. You're kind of entertained by Jesus. Uh, you have a lot of opinions about how the church should be, how the church should be run, what God's people should be doing. But you got no skin in the game yourself. You have a lot of opinions. And you have a lot of thoughts. But you got no skin in the game yourself. And this is actually the most dangerous because Jesus, uh, in the book of Revelation, he's talking to his church one of the churches, and he goes, listen, I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. I'd rather you be cold because God is calling people to get on the field and to play the game. And some of you, you are those people on the field. You have submitted yourself to Jesus. You are all in. You are all in every part of your life. I call it imperfect faithfulness. Like you're not perfect, 
but you are all in on what Jesus is doing. And it's hard. It's really hard. It's messy. Um, sometimes you don't know. It seems like, are we even winning this thing? Right? Um, there's injuries. Right? You yourself feel injured. You are injured. Uh, those you love are injured and hurting. But I want to tell you that Jesus is with you. And you have trusted in him. You have, you have been committed to the coach's game plan. Jesus is with you. He loves you. Uh, he will reward you. He is empowering you. He sees you where you're at. And he is asking you to trust him because he is moving his forward. And even when you don't see the fruit of what God is doing in your life or in those around you, he is at work. Amen? So I just want to leave you with this. Imagine if, imagine if everybody in this room, everybody who called Redemption Gilbert their home local church, imagine if everybody here completely gave themselves over to Jesus. Like if you got on the field, everybody in this room got on the field. Imagine what that would do to your life. Imagine the transformation that would take place. Imagine what that would do at your work. If you were on the field, pursuing Jesus' kingdom mission at your workplace, imagine what that would do. Imagine what that would do to your family. And imagine what that would do to this city. See, we know the end of the story. And we know that Jesus wins. Um, Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But Jesus wins. And he is coming back. And he will be joyfully delighted to see his bride, the church. And uh, we will dwell with our King and our Lord and our Savior forever and ever together. And uh, we will worship him in a renewed world. Uh, I'm excited. Are you guys excited for that? I sure hope so. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. And uh, God, we're so thankful that you are, you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. God, we're, th- we're so thankful for the privilege of being your people. God, we have a huge call, uh, and you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. God, I pray that we'd be a people here at this church who take up our call. God, I pray that we'd be a people who are able to humbly confess our sin in an age of pride and self-interested apologies. Um, And God, I pray that we'd be a people of, of trust. God, that we trust you to do what you said you would do. Um, and Lord, ultimately, um, we worship you um, because we, we know and we have experienced in our, in our lives, God, that you are real, you're at work, and we're excited at what you're going to see uh, you do through us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.